As you remain standing, let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we come to you in praise and in adoration of who you are. And we praise you and thank you for the mercy that is just so thick in our lives, each of us. And we confess today together as we sing this song and as we gather in this place that we, uh, we need you. We need that mercy. We need that unending supply of grace. Uh, and we praise you that you have it. We don't have to look anywhere else. We can look to you. We can look to your son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross for us. Now, Lord, as we move from praise to looking deeply at the word, God, I pray that the Spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds, that would sink these truths um, deep inside of us uh, and be served uh, to change us. We look to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. And as you're getting situated, go ahead and turn to the book of Jonah. The fourth chapter of the book of Jonah is where we'll be today. Again, Jonah is in between Obadiah and Micah. And because you know where those uh, Old Testament books are, I know that you'll find Jonah just fine. Uh, but we're in a short little two-week series on the book of Jonah. Last week, we looked at Jonah chapter 3. This week, we are looking at Jonah chapter 4. This actually goes all the way back to last summer about this time when we looked at Jonah chapter 1 and Jonah chapter 2. So it's taken us about a year, but we've gotten all the way through this uh, Old Testament minor prophet, uh, maybe with a few interruptions uh, along the way. So rather than start with an introduction or a joke or a story, we're going to dive right in to this passage um, and then move forward from there. So look at Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is God's word. May he write its truth upon our heart today. The story of 
Jonah is a Bible story that makes it into just about every children's book or Bible story book that is published. I mean, how could it not? It is just too good. It's just too wondrous to leave out, particularly leave out of a children's book. Tragically, however, most children's books, when they tell the story of Jonah, they do not include the fourth chapter. Yet, as I mentioned last week, the key to understanding the book of Jonah lies in the book's closing chapter, in chapter 4. And so the book is a bit like the movie The Sixth Sense. Remember The Sixth Sense? It's a 20-year-old movie, so it doesn't bother me to spoil it for you. But if you have seen it, you remember that in the closing scene, you become aware that the main character has been dead for basically the entire movie. And there's this little boy that he's been trying to help. And the strange thing about the little boy is that he sees dead people. And you realize at the very end, he is able to talk with Bruce Willis's character because Bruce Willis is one of the dead people. Remember that? And what does that mean exactly? Well, it means it's a pretty creepy movie, but it also means that you don't watch The Sixth Sense a second time without seeing it in a completely different way. Once you know the ending, the whole story takes on a different meaning. And so it is with Jonah. Once you read and understand the fourth chapter of Jonah, the whole book just blows wide open. And so what we're going to do this morning is, in an effort to grasp this book, we'll, we'll read back through this chapter, asking some questions along the way, and then hopefully we'll find some application to our lives, okay? All right, well, let's go. First, we see that Jonah's anger leads him to pray. In verse 2 of chapter 4, Jonah is said to go to the Lord in prayer. And this is the second time in the book that Jonah prays. First time, right after chapter 1, but in chapter 1, Jonah finds himself drowning in the deep sea. And as he's sinking, as he's going down to what he calls the base of the mountains, he prays to the Lord. And there he prays a grateful prayer. And in that prayer, Jonah recognizes his sin. He's awakened to it. He places his faith back in the Lord to a degree Jonah repents. And in the course of this, God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah, saving him from death, giving him a gracious second chance to obey. And so with this second chance, Jonah goes to Assyria's greatest city, the city of Nineveh, where he preaches a message that God has given him. And the whole city, hundreds of thousands of people, repented and believed in God when they heard Jonah's message. And so Jonah goes from running from God to preaching a revival. And let's see, let's see how he responded. Hundreds of thousands repent, hundreds of thousands believe in God. How excited is Jonah the prophet? Verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What? I mean, what? And, and Jonah's displeasure here is actually an accusation. Jonah is accusing God of nothing less than being evil. God had told Jonah that Nineveh was evil, and he, he needed him to go and preach to them. And so Jonah went and preached to them. They respond in faith and repentance, and Jonah's response is, God, Nineveh's not only evil, you're evil. If you were good, you would have judged that wicked city. That's what they deserved, but you didn't. 
They repented, and so you relented from showing your wrath. Why, God, would you do such an unjust thing? And so Jonah, this man who had been shown so much grace, God pursued him when he ran away. God sent a fish to swallow him and save him from the deep. God delivered him to dry land intact, gave him a message to preach to Nineveh. Jonah, whom God had used to to bring about the the largest revival any time in history, arguably, Jonah had been shown so much grace. But here's the thing we're learning about Jonah. Jonah actually hated grace. And he hated it because fundamentally he did not understand it. In Jonah's mind, you had to be worthy of grace. And there was only one nation worthy of grace, and that was Israel. Meaning when grace didn't benefit Jonah or his nation or his people, he despised it. Grace given to others had to be earned, and in Jonah's mind, Nineveh didn't deserve it. They hadn't earned it. And so safe to say, Jonah didn't understand grace. And my question to you is, do you? Do you understand grace? Here's a way to to gauge your understanding of grace. Just a quick comment. Your view of grace is most clearly defined by what you want for people you like the least. Your view of grace is most clearly defined by what you want for people you like the least. Jonah didn't understand grace because he hated Nineveh. He didn't want grace for them. And when grace arrived in Nineveh, he was mad. And how do I know this is the case? Look at his prayer there in verse 2. O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? So he's flashing back to when initially the word of the Lord had come to him. Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. So here we see the real reason why Jonah initially fled God's call on his life. It wasn't for fear of the Assyrians. It wasn't because he he thought he might get beheaded or or skinned alive or impaled on a pole. It was because Jonah knew his Bible. This language here is straight from Exodus 34. Jonah knew his Bible. He knew God's true nature and God's true character. He knew God might very well pity Nineveh, and he wanted no part of any of it. He did not want to be the prophet who helped the enemy, these wicked Assyrians. And so you contrast this prayer in chapter 4 with the one in chapter 2. The the prayer in chapter 2 was all about God's deliverance of Jonah. And you remember, its conclusion was salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. That's how the prayer concludes, but not this prayer. This prayer recognizes God's attributes, and at the same time, it almost mocks them, doesn't it? Warren Wiersbe had this to say. He says, Jonah prays his best prayer from the worst place, the belly of the fish. And Jonah prays his worst prayer from the best place, on the back end of a revival. He prays his best prayer from the worst place. He prays his worst prayer from the best place. And the real focus of this prayer, if you look, is Jonah. This prayer contains no fewer than nine references to to I or my or me. And that makes sense because When your life is the most important thing in your life, your prayers get very self-centered. Your prayer life is all about you. 
And when you are thoroughly self-centered, that quickly leads to self-pity. And that self-pity quickly leads to despair, which is exactly what Jonah expresses when he says his desire is to just die. Jonah wants to die. Therefore, God responds to Jonah with a question. This is the first of three questions God asks Jonah in the final chapter. In Scripture, God likes to ask questions because questions are effective in exposing the condition of men's hearts. And you might remember God asked questions of Adam and Eve when they had sinned in the garden. He said, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What is this that you have done? And it wasn't that God didn't know the answer to those questions, but he needed them to know the answers to those questions. He questioned Cain after he murdered his brother. Where's your brother Abel? What have you done? After David had sinned with Bathsheba and David had her husband uh, uh, killed on the front lines of battle, Nathan comes to David, again, asking a question. Why did you despise the Lord by doing evil? And then, of course, Jesus, he asks his betrayer Judas a pointed question. Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? upon Jesus' arrest. And it's the same with Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? God asks. Have you any right to be angry, Jonah? And what was God getting at with this question? Well, he's wanting Jonah to really think about what he's saying. Really think about the accusations that he's leveling against God. Is it the prophet of God or the God of the prophet that is right in his dealing with Nineveh. That's what God is asking. God's saying to Jonah, we have both watched this scene play out. You are angry. I am pleased with it. Who do you think has the proper perspective? Yet Jonah didn't care for God's question. So, Jonah's answer was just to leave Nineveh. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah's answered God by saying, I'll just go up on this hill outside of the city and I'll wait. Because you gave them 40 days, God. And I know they look repentant right now, but but this is Nineveh we're talking about. They're going to return to their evil, and when they do, you will destroy them, and I'll have the best seat in the house. So just do your worst, God. So Jonah took his place. He built his little shelter. He sat down in his fold-up chair, grabbed something cold to drink, and he just waited. Because somewhere along the way, God's threat to destroy Nineveh has become very important to Jonah. He, He despised the Assyrians, and he hopes that God would judge them. So instead of seeking shelter in the city, he retreats outside the city. He had no desire to stay and and disciple or teach these repentant souls. He had no heart to to love them toward deeper faith and obedience. They repent, and what does Jonah do? He leaves. He goes outside the city, and he sets up camp and watches for the wrath of God to come down. There's actually a New Testament parallel to this scene, a couple of them, actually. The one I'll point out now is a little more direct, but I want you to think of the older brother in the prodigal son parable talking about Luke 15, the the prodigal son parable, where the prodigal son sins terribly against his father, takes his inheritance, squanders it in loose living, only to return home and actually receive mercy from his father. 
And in that parable, who stood outside of the welcome home party that the father threw for his lost son? It was that self-righteous older brother. So, so like the older brother, Jonah leaves the city. He sits outside what's going on there. And what does God do in this back and forth exchange that he's trying to engage Jonah in? God says, okay, you don't want to answer my questions? I'll respond with grace. I'll respond with sovereign grace. Look at verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, and it came up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. This is a wild scene, isn't it? We have this huffy, self-righteous prophet who, who despises the way that God uses his grace. He's left the city of Nineveh because instead of rejoicing over hundreds of thousands of people who've repented, he's holding out for it to be destroyed. And what does God do? At the height of Jonah's tantrum, God shows him compassion by giving him shade. This is the second time in the book the word appointed is used. It's about to be used two more times in the next two verses, but you remember back in chapter 1, verse 17, God appointed something there as well. He appointed a fish, that fish that would swallow Jonah. Jonah's drowning in the sea, and God rescues him with a great act of sovereign grace. Well, here in verse 6 of chapter 4, God sends grace again, and this time it's through comforting Jonah with the shade of this plant. And this plant is either a fast-growing type of gourd or maybe a castor oil plant. Both of those can grow several feet tall and do so almost overnight. And so God sprouts one next to Jonah's booth. And, and what does Jonah think about the plant? The text says he was exceedingly glad about the plant. He, he had just been exceedingly displeased when God showed the Ninevites grace. That's how the chapter starts. And now he's exceedingly glad. And incidentally, this is the first time in the whole book where we see Jonah happy. And Jonah is happy because finally God did something kind to Jonah. Jonah was an Israelite, a prophet of the northern kingdom, a good news prophet that, that boasted of the expansion of the northern kingdom's borders. He, he enjoyed, Jonah did, he enjoyed prosperity and, and comfort and esteem in Israel. And finally, God gave him what he loved, gave him comfort. And so Jonah's delighted with this. But you keep reading, and God gives more grace, this time in taking away the shade. Here's our word appointed again, verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. God appointed a fish. God appointed a plant. Now God appointed a worm. His grace had saved Jonah from drowning. It had blessed Jonah with comfort. Now his grace is being used to make Jonah uncomfortable. And it should blow your doors off that God controls even the worms. From the biggest fish of the sea to even the worms. Even the worms are under his command. But in destroying this plant with this tiny worm, he's exposing Jonah's idolatry. He's up to something big with what's going on here. And he's in effect saying, Jonah, you are displeased at the repentance of an entire city, but you rejoice over a plant that provides you comfort. I'm going to take the plant away. 
And I identify this as grace because God's grace doesn't just come to you in physical blessings. His grace can come to you in the removal of those blessings as well. And in this passage, it would even come a third way. Verse 8, here's the word appointed again. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, and he was faint. So God's grace is now displayed in the affliction that he's bringing on Jonah. In this part of the Middle East, there's a desert phenomenon called a Sirocco. And the geography of the Bible, at least the one on my shelf, had to say this about these desert wind events. It says, during the the, the period of a Sirocco, the temperature rises steeply, sometimes even climbing during the night. And it remains high, about 16 to 22 degrees Fahrenheit above the average. At times, every scrap of moisture seems to have been extracted from the air so that one has the curious feeling that one's skin has been drawn much tighter than usual. Sirocco days are extremely trying to the temper and tend to make even the mildest people irritable and fretful and to snap at one another for apparently no reason at all. And this is what God has appointed to afflict Jonah. But again, I call this affliction grace because God is again bringing Jonah to the end of himself. To serve God, we need to come to the end of ourselves, and we don't get there without grace. We don't get there without God's help. It was Paul Tripp who, in his book, What Did You Expect?, he writes this about God's fierce grace. He says, there are moments in our lives when we are crying out for grace, not recognizing that we are getting it. We're not getting the grace of relief or the grace of release because that's not the grace we really need. No, what we are getting is something we desperately need, the uncomfortable grace of personal growth and change. He goes on, with the love of a father, your Lord is prying open your hands so that you will let go of the things that have come to rule your heart but will never satisfy you. With the insight of a seasoned teacher, he's driving you to question your own wisdom so that you'll find your understanding and rest in his wisdom. With the skill of the world's best counselor, God is showing you the delusions of your control so that you'll take comfort in his rule. With the gentleness of a faithful friend, he is facing you toward the inadequacies of your own righteousness so that you'll find your hope in his righteousness. It's a great quote. What was Jonah's response to God's fierce grace? Jonah's continued hardness of heart here in verse 8 resulted in despair. Look at the second half of verse 8. It says, Jonah wanted to die. He's already asked for God to kill him once in verse 3. And if you remember back to chapter 1, he tells the sailors to throw him overboard. That's so he can die there as well. So in this narrative, Jonah has consistently said, God, I'd rather die than preach to Nineveh. You see why this doesn't make its way into the children's books? And once he preaches to them and they repent, he says, God, I'd rather die than live in a world where you give grace to people like the Assyrians. 
And here he just says, God, I'm faint, I'm tired, I'm dehydrated. This assignment, it's had me with with pagan sailors in a tempestuous storm. It's had me drowning in the sea. It's had me in the belly of a fish. It's It's had me in the most wicked city and the most wicked nation. And now I'm out in this desert heat and wind. God, I am through with all of this. If this is serving you, I want you to just kill me. And so God responds with another question. Look at this first part of verse 9. Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? Basically saying, you you were angry with me, and and now you're going to be angry with something as small as a vine. You, You were angry that a great number of Ninevites were spared, yet you're also upset that a small vine has died? You had people, people made in my image, people I love, repenting and believing in me, and you, you hate that? But you, you hate more even? The fact that this vine has died? God is exposing Jonah's values. Jo- Jonah's loves are completely out of priority. He doesn't love God's people. He loves God's provision. He doesn't love God. He only loves God's blessing. He doesn't love the nations. He only loves his nation. You see this? A little over eight years ago, I was on staff here at Faith Bible Church, but I was being called to pastor a church in Enid, Oklahoma. And it wasn't a big church, wasn't a popular church, didn't have a lot of young families, wasn't in a nice part of town. And as I was trying to make the decision to go, I just went to Enid one day to to drive around and to pray. That was my agenda, just just pray through the city. And as I was sitting at a stoplight a, a few blocks from the church that I was being invited to pastor, I got overwhelmed by a question, and it was this. Jay, do you love people, or do you just love certain kinds of people? So after serving 10 years in Edmond, where I'd gotten very used to to nice neighborhoods and the veneer that serves as a pretty gloss over the lives of middle-class families, I was considering a place more obviously broken, a place much less affluent, a place socioeconomically very different. And so this question pops in my head. Do you love people, or do you just love certain kinds of people? And so then and there, I made the decision I was heading to Enid. It it was a needed check to my values. Because listen, there's nothing supernatural about loving people just like you. There's nothing supernatural about about loving people who look just like you, who behave just like you, who believe just like you, But there is something supernatural about loving people who are very different from you, who have different values, who sit on a different side of the political aisle. That's the kind of supernatural love God calls his believers toward. But we can't have that kind of love if we have the wrong values. Again, the values of the northern kingdom where Jonah served as prophet, they're coming to bear in a big way here. Jonah cares for comfort, He loves his country in an idolatrous way. And so Jonah is angry at an act of God that takes his comfort away and appears to be diminishing his nation's prosperity. He's angry. So God asks this question, and this time Jonah does dare answer. And in so doing, he affirms the depth of his own anger. Jonah's saying in the second half of verse 9, I do have the right to be angry so angry that I just want to die. 
Jonah keeps wanting to die. Do you notice this? This reminded me of one of the best speeches I ever heard. It was actually a commencement address delivered by David Foster Wallace. Wallace was an author. He actually committed suicide in 2008. But he was a very popular writer uh, in the late 90s and, and 2000s. Not a Christian, actually an atheist. But to a group of college graduates, David Foster Wallace said this. He says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will, ne- and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Worship your body and beauty, and you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. It's a profound passage. And what he's saying is the temporal earthbound idols that we tend to worship, these objects of worship that are pretty much our default setting, power, appearance, and money, where they ultimately lead us is to despair. They will fail to truly satisfy our hearts, and when we have an inordinate love for them, we end up dying for them, or we end up self-destructing in our service to them. And that is precisely why Jonah wants to die. The prosperity of his nation, the comfort of wealth, the esteem of his office as prophet, those are the idols of his heart. That's what Jonah worships. And it's crumbling around him, and he wants to die. But here's what what makes Christianity so unique and beautiful. The God of the Bible is the only God that says, you don't die for me, I die for you. You don't lay down your life for me, I lay down my life for you. I spoke of that direct contrast with the prodigal son a little bit, or or that, excuse me, that direct parallel of the prodigal son a little bit earlier. Maybe you see the contrasting parallel to Jesus that we have here. Jesus took an uncommon assignment to a foreign land. Jesus left his home in heaven to come to earth. He preached to a wicked and adulterous generation in Jerusalem. And when he was finished with his preaching ministry, he too went to a hill outside of the city. But instead of taking his place on that hill to watch the wrath of God come down on the city, Jesus took his place on the hill outside the city in order to receive the wrath of God upon himself. He bore the wrath of God so that those who believe might be saved. The work of Jesus, better than the work of Jonah. Forsake your worthless idols. Put those to death. Don't die for those because I'll, I'll die for you when you seek me, is what God is saying to Jonah. But Jonah isn't there. He's not there. He worships his country. He worships comfort. Those are the, those are the things in jeopardy. So he doesn't want God. He wants to die. And so God responds with a third question. And with this question, the book closes. There are only two books in the Bible that end with a question, Jonah and Nahum. Coincidentally, both of the questions have to do with the city of Nineveh. And the closing question is this, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Some try to estimate that the population of Nineveh is up around 600,000 people. And you get there by saying that God is talking about small children here in this verse, people not knowing their right hand from their left. And so therefore, if there were 120,000 small children, there would have been four or five times as many older children and adults, which that very well may be the right way to interpret the number of people in Nineveh. I'm not exactly sure. But another view of this right hand from left phrase is that these Assyrians, they have no moral compass. They don't know right from wrong. They're morally bankrupt and have no one shepherding them toward the true knowledge of God. And because of this reality, God pities them which is a word that means he weeps for them. God weeps for the sinful, rebellious people in the world. He weeps for them. That paints a picture of his deep love for them. Even though they're living against him or running from him or hating him with their actions, he is weeping for them. So however you want to calculate the population of Nineveh, either position has the same implication. God pities sinners. He's pitying Nineveh. And so Jonah, don't you pity them too, God asks. What about their cows? You pitied the plant. Will you even pity their cows? You wept over the plant that died. Surely a cow is more important than a plant. Steak is better than salad, Jonah. I got an amen in the first service for that. (laughs) Just saying. And so the book ends with that open-ended question, should I not love that great city? I want you to go back and notice who speaks the first words in this prophetic book. It begins like every other prophetic book in the Old Testament, and the word of the Lord came. That's how it starts. And then as you look here at the end in verse 11, notice who has the last word in the book. Again, it's the word of the Lord. So who's the book about? It's not about Jonah. It's not about a fish. It's not about a city. It's a book about God. It's it's about God's desire for his people to understand how his mercy and his grace extends to all kinds of people, all kinds of sinners. And how he desires for us to forsake our worthless idols so that we won't forfeit the grace and mercy that is ours for the taking and ours for the giving as we extend love and grace toward others. So the big question as you get to the end is, what in the world happened to Jonah? You know, if Jonah wrote this book, which I'm fairly convinced he did, then I think Jonah repented. I actually think Jonah was a changed man. I mean, How else could we know that Jonah is such a racist idiot, right? Only someone secure in God's love could paint this kind of picture of himself. Only a man who had been humbled by God could write a story with such detail and such self-deprecation, such insight into the heart of God's desire to reach the nations with his grace. If you're familiar with the famous Sistine Chapel or perhaps you've, you've visited the Vatican in Rome and and seen that masterpiece in person. One of the walls in the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo, on one of the walls, he has this painting called The Prophets and the Apostles. And in the painting, he has tried to capture the faces of all the Old Testament prophets 
and the New Testament apostles. And it's interesting, out of all of the faces Michelangelo, Michelangelo painted, none of them have a more radiant countenance than Jonah. Michelangelo was convinced that, that Jonah accepted God's merciful pity, that Jonah became a messenger of grace to his own nation through, through this book and through later his preaching as a prophet of God. And I actually agree with Michelangelo. I, I believe Jonah forsook his worthless idols and he laid hold of the grace of God, the, the grace that God was holding out to him and that he wanted him to hold out to other people. So let me just ask you to, to ask the Lord to apply this book to your own heart. There, there are dozens of points of application. Let me just bring up a few. Perhaps you need to address your prejudices. You need to address your prejudices and to say to God that you will serve anyone he leads you to. Perhaps you've run from God and you know he's chasing you. Let me just tell you, his presence cannot be escaped. If you're here and you've been running from God, look to him. Throw yourself down upon him. Trust in him. Look to Christ who's died on the cross for you. Trust in Jesus and be saved. Don't run from God anymore. It's a, it's a fruitless endeavor. Perhaps you need to forsake your worthless idols. You worship money and politics and power. And where are those things getting you? Perhaps you're afraid. A lot of us are afraid right now, aren't we? Or maybe you're like others in this room. Maybe you're just comfortable, and you really like being comfortable. Or maybe, God forbid, maybe like Jonah, you want to die. Perhaps you make people earn grace and compassion rather than extending it to them. Maybe God is calling you to go somewhere and, and to be a herald for the gospel, somewhere hard. How will the Spirit apply Jonah to your heart? This is a great book because no matter how much we marvel at the hard heart of Jonah, when we look closely, not just the book, but ourselves, when we look closely, we're all Jonah. This book connects somewhere, somehow, to our experience with God, and the best thing we can do in response is repent, embrace God's amazing grace toward us, and then extend that grace and love toward other people. Let's pray together. God, we're so grateful to be gathered here in this place today. We thank you for the opportunity to, to sing to you, to see each other and encourage one another's hearts, to look at your word and, and see what you have for us there. Lord, I, I pray that through this story you would work in the lives of our members, that, that you would work in, in them to, to make this church more of a culture of grace than even it already is. That you would work in this church to give people boldness and confidence in where it is you're sending them. And Lord, we would not be afraid of places that are hard or unsafe or even seemingly beyond your mercy. But we would walk with you wherever it is you lead us. God, make us a people who never flee from your presence but run towards you every day of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.